video was helpful for you uh, as the first section of Acts has now been completed. And as we said, last week's chapter 8 brings us into the next movement of the gospel and the church into Samaria. Uh, This morning's passage will pick up where last week's left off, and that's with Philip in Samaria. So Acts 8, we're just going to dive right in because that video did all my introduction work for me. All right, verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on him, on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said May come upon me. Now, when they had testified and had spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Father, would you please help us to understand your word this morning? Uh, God, as you give us this wonderful story uh, by your Spirit through the hand of Luke, we pray that we would gather from this text exactly what you want to say to us this morning. We know that you're a personal God, and so we're praying that you speak to us personally as well as a body. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this portion of Luke's narrative, he brings in a character named Simon, as we see in our text. Simon was a magician and had great influence over people because of his magic. Uh, The people likened his magic or his power to that of a great God. And in the way Luke writes this section, if you included verses 5 through 8 that we saw before verse 9, he intentionally is comparing Simon and Philip. He stresses that both wielded great power and held people's attention. They captivated their audience and their crowds. But both, it's important to know that both had very different motives, and very different aims. And that's what we'll see in our text this morning. So verse 12 
tells us that upon hearing Philip's preaching, the Samaritans believe and are baptized, both men and women. Then in verse 13, we see something even more amazing. The magician, Simon, believes and is baptized. So what we have, it seems to be, is a pretty powerful movement of God. And this is exactly what Jesus instructed his apostles to do. And by his sovereign hand, he is orchestrating it that the gospel would get to Samaria. So the gospel going to Samaria is a fulfillment of God's promises to save his people from all nations. Now in verse 14, our our text tells us something that's going to take a little bit of explaining. So before I can get to the main idea of the text this morning, I've got to do some explaining on this this next section that we see. Uh, If not, that could cause some confusion. Not it could, but it actually has in a lot of circles. So what we see is the Samaritans coming to faith in Jesus calls quite a stir. Such a stir that word gets back to Jerusalem of what's happening. The church in Jerusalem send Peter and John uh, to go and see what's going on. And in verse 14, uh, that's what they're doing. They're coming to check things out. Verse 15 tells us that they came and they prayed for these new believers that they all might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this seems kind of odd. Verse 16 says that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on them, but they, they had been baptized in the name of Jesus. So, we've got to ask the question, how is it that these New Samaritan converts had believed the gospel and been baptized, but yet they had not received the Holy Spirit? Like What we teach here at Grace Fellowship and... Uh, We are in line with the teaching of Scripture uh, from the people that have passed it down to us that when you're saved and you believe the gospel, you receive the Holy Spirit upon conversion. But that doesn't seem to be what's happening here. So what's the deal? Well, if you remember back to the very beginning of Acts, the very first sermon I preached, I explained that Acts is narrative in genre, which means that it's telling a story. As we read through the story, just like with all other narrative books in the Bible, we won't take everything as prescriptive, meaning this is what we do because this is the way they did things. That's not how we'll take everything that we see. The case in point is Pentecost. Pentecost is not something we need to try to replicate. Back in Acts 2, it was a special moment in salvation history where God sent his Holy Spirit in a powerful way. Way in a powerful demonstration to his apostles. Remember this tongues of fire, as we saw in the recap video, tongues of fire and the sound of rushing winds. And these are depictions that trace back to the Old Testament of God's presence. So we don't need to try and replicate this event because it was a sign that was pointing to something. That's the big deal. And and, and as Ryan reminded us so many weeks ago, don't miss what the sign is pointing to. Now what's happening in Samaria is also a special moment in history that signifies the gospel moving out to illegitimate Jews called Samaritans. You see, the Samaritans were people who were unworthy of being called Jews because they had not succumbed to all the Jewish laws. So when Jesus, don't miss this, a Jewish man 
who was the long-anticipated Jewish Messiah, had commissioned his Jewish followers to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You can imagine that there is a bit of a block or barrier in these Jewish people's conscience about this. Uh, The rest of the world is not Jewish. They saw the Samaritans, as well as others that we'll see in the coming chapters, as being unworthy to receive God's blessing because they didn't adhere to the Jewish religion. But Jesus made it very clear that while his gospel must go to the Jews first, it will be taken to the ends of the earth and be for everyone. So knowing all of this, we can conclude the following. God sovereignly orchestrated that upon the reception of the gospel to the Samaritans, his spirit would be held back until the apostles from the Jerusalem church were able to come and see that they had in fact believed and then not only witness but also be used by God to deliver his Holy Spirit to these people. That's what's happening. The effect of this would be that they would go back to the Jerusalem church testifying to the Jewish Christians that God had done the same miraculous work of regeneration in the Samaritans that he had done in them. Just as they had received God's spirit, so had the Samaritans. And you better believe that this news would have been shocking to the Jewish people. This would be one of many signs that God uh, uses to show them to hammer into their hearts that his salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it's according to the scriptures and available to everyone. That's what he's hammering into their head. So this is why we have Peter and John coming, laying their hands on these men And praying for them to receive God's spirit. It was to be a powerful sign that God was saving the Samaritans in the same way he was saving the Jews. With no prerequisites. However, if you don't couch this story within the rest of scripture, you might walk away thinking something like, well, I mean... According to Acts, it seems like the Holy Spirit is something you get after you get saved at some point. Like a second baptism or something. Well, This belief is held by uh, differently, but both by Pentecostals and Catholics. You know, hermeneutics is the way in which we interpret uh, the scriptures. Uh, Just this past Friday, I met with a group of men who aspire to teach God's word. And we spent two and a half hours talking about this subject. I'll give you the cliff notes. <laughs> imagine, you're, uh, imagine for a moment that you, I, I wrote a love letter to my wife, okay? Like a really mushy-gushy love letter. Uh, and you picked it up. And you began reading it as if it was written to you. Now, that's going to cause some weirdness and some confusion for you and I both. Not necessarily, listen, not necessarily that you read the letter, but the way in which you read it, it wasn't to you specifically. Does that, does that make sense? The fact that you took it out of context is going to make things weird for us. You didn't read the letter as something I'm writing to my wife. You tried to interpret it as from me to you. So while this is a silly example, it does make the point. The way we read the Bible matters. 
We need to read narratives as they were intended, which is to help us see what is happening at this point in salvation history. And then see what applies and carries over for us today and what doesn't. That doesn't mean we get to pick and choose what we like and don't like. Rather, it means that the places where we have like Paul writing to Timothy and telling him to bring his cloak and parchment from Troas, that's not instructive for us. Okay? Like my boss, my old boss actually went to Troas to try to find those items. He was disappointed because they weren't there, right? So hopefully the, the, the big idea is, and I just want to clear the air, uh, that, that, we, that we read Scripture and we read this narrative in Acts, we read what's happening in the way that it was meant for intended, to see what God is doing at this point in salvation history. Does that make sense? All right, I know that was a really long aside, but I, I just feel like we need to hit those, some of those things so that there's not confusion. So back to the Scriptures. The next section of this passage brings us back around to Simon, verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. You see, Simon's life before the gospel, before believing the gospel, was all about power. His power was his identity. It was how he was known, and it was what made him relevant. So when Simon sees this incredible power of the Holy Spirit given to others by the apostle, he lusts for it. He saw God's power as being a means to his own end. Namely, his power, and his prestige. And I believe this is the main idea of our text this morning. Simon saw Jesus as a means and not the end. He saw Jesus and the gospel as useful to carry out his own purposes and desires. But church, Jesus is not the means to some other end that we want. It's not who Jesus is. Jesus is the end of the gospel. And that's going to be our title today. If you're taking notes, Jesus is the means and the end of the gospel. So how do we get here? How do we get from a man who seems to be regenerate, the scriptures say he believed, was baptized, and followed Philip, to that same man trying to buy the power of God with money? The answer is going to be your first point this morning. How do we get here? Subtle deception. Subtle deception. In our world today, the enemy has used a tool called the prosperity gospel to ravage the world. Like ravage the world. It goes something like this. You got it bad. You got it real bad. But if you believe Jesus, then it won't be so bad. It'll be good for you. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and whole. Now, there are countless versions of this, some way more blatant than others. And uh, this isn't something that's far off, like in Africa. It for sure is in Africa, but it's actually something that's very close, church. It's preached every Sunday in this county, in 
lots of churches, not a few weird ones, a lot of big ones. This kind of prosperity gospel, but it's unbiblical. It's a false gospel. And I know that most of you in here would agree with this intellectually. But in today's sermon, you will not hear me mainly railing against the false gospel that's out there, but rather I'll be coming against the false gospel that's in here. In here, to be more specific. If you're sitting here this morning and you think that you wouldn't ever fall prey to believing something this preposterous, I hope by the end of today's sermon you will think again. Again, I don't think that most of you would ever sign on to something like a prosperity document, but I do believe that the enemy is constantly sowing lies into our hearts that causes the clarity of the gospel to become blurred in our life. And this blurriness can be seen when we act out in ways that are counter to the gospel. And this is exactly what we have in our text this morning. I'm pretty confident that the gospel Philip preached to these Samaritans and Simon was not a false gospel. But rather, at some point, a lie was sown into Simon's heart. A lie that said the gospel can make you rich and the gospel can make you powerful This led Simon to grabbing his wallet, much like we do when we see something we want, and offering the apostles money for this power. Now, we know it was the enemy who sowed that lie into Simon's heart, and we know that the enemy is still sowing lies into believers and non-believers alike about the gospel. So I believe we'd be amiss this morning if we didn't examine ourselves And ask the question, why do we value the gospel? Why do we call ourselves Christians? Like, why do we bear the name of Jesus? Why do we worship him? Is it for acclaim? Being a Christian is good for our reputation? Well, that's true, especially here where we live. Is it for righteousness? So we can... Maybe boast in our self-righteousness like the Jewish people and Pharisees of all times? Is it for grace? So we can do whatever we want to and not feel bad about it. Is it for comfort in order to find a sense of peace about our lives? Is it for security to feel safe about what's beyond the curtain of death? Or is it for prosperity? Like, you've just seen that being a Christian is advantageous and it helps you get things. You know, I went through a list last week of things that Jesus does in my life, things like making me a better husband, making me more wise in my finances, making me a better uh, father to my kids, making me a better friend making me less selfish and more pure, making me a good neighbor. But I made sure to emphasize that these are added bonuses to worshiping Jesus and are never to be pursued by using Jesus as a means to get them. Does that make sense? Yes? 
It makes sense to me. And my problem is not that I don't know these things. It's, it's that I, I struggle to believe them. Just this past week, I was confessing sin to a brother. And he told me, Corey, I think you're focusing too much on not sinning. He actually said, I think you need to stop worrying so much with it and just fix your eyes on Jesus. Pursue him. Love him. Enjoy him. Focus on your relationship with him. Like this was a word that basically removed the fog from my head that, that, that was there in that moment. Church, I was trying so hard to beat sin that Jesus had become a mere means to its defeat while the end had become for me being free from sin and not greater intimacy with Jesus. This is subtle self-righteousness and legalism creeping in. You might be thinking to yourself, Corey, you're telling me that I can use Jesus as a means to put away sinful habits, yet be no better off once they're gone because the end I desired was to be a more perfect person and not intimate fellowship with him? Yep. Yep. Jesus told the Pharisees, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have life in them, but it's they that testify about me. Like, that just moved me this week, and I went, what in the world? How easily we get off here. But you see, this was Simon's problem. He saw the gospel and Jesus as a means to his own end rather than the means to the end, namely Jesus. This is why churches are full of so many religious people who don't know God. This is why prosperity gospel can flourish, even like a place like Calhoun County, the Bible Belt, because there aren't many people heralding that the gospel, that the good news is that you get relationship with Jesus. Like, that's what you get. Rather, we make the end something else, like eternal life, forgiveness of sin, heaven over hell. And church, it's, it's not that we don't get those things, but just saying you get this is a terrible reduction of the good news of Jesus. And it's one of the ways in which the gospel gets off track. The gospel contains all of those things, but should never be reduced down to just one of them. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is redeeming a people for himself. A people that will be his own possession. The scriptures give us this beautiful picture that Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. All of history is headed toward this wonderful wedding feast of the Lamb. This is what salvation is all about. It's about entering into a covenant of love with God. <laughs> so it makes sense when Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, You'll obey my commands. Or when God says in Isaiah 29, 13, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
Or when the Lord makes it as clear as possible in Hosea 6, 6, and he says, I don't want your sacrifices. I want your love. I don't want your offerings. I want you to know me. So don't miss this. Church, the God of the universe is beckoning us to come into his presence and commune with him. And what's our response? We treat him like some disconnected deity that we need to keep happy. Thus using him, using his favor, using his blessings, using his promises as a means to our own end. This was wretched when Simon did it. And it's still wretched when we subtly do it. So this text teaches us that we have a problem. Simon had a problem, but his problem at its root is our same problem. We are susceptible to the deception that God can be used as a means to our own end. We won't easily notice this deception because it's subtle. Our enemy is crafty, and even among God's children, he can sow lies and wreak spiritual havoc on them. So then how do we keep this from happening? How do we keep from going off course? How do we keep from being deceived into using God for our own purposes or our own ends? Or for some of you this morning, the question might be, how do I get on course there might be some of you this morning who are deeply convicted that you profess Christ at some point in your life for some other reason than because you love him. And now you're trying to walk out this Christian life, but you have no desire for Jesus. Like you have no passion, no love for him. All that ever fills your mind is what you want, what you need, and how you're doing the answer for the struggling Christian this morning and the unbeliever is the same. Repent, as Peter calls Simon to in verse 22. Repent, and don't miss this next part. Make Christ your supreme delight. <laughs> That's what Christian repentance is. It's a turning from the worthless idols and a turning to Christ in adoration. It's not just a stopping the bad things you're doing and start doing good things. You see, Simon got into this mess by pursuing power over the powerful one. Likewise, we get into this mess of using Jesus as a means to our own end by subtle deception, power versus powerful one, very similar. But now the way out of this mess is supreme delight in Jesus. That's the answer. Psalm 37, 4 tells us to delight ourselves in the Lord and he will give us the desires of your heart. Now what does that mean? I mean it was the desire of Simon's heart for power, but obviously... This wasn't going to be given to him by Christ. Peter's re re rebuke was so strong and as straightforward as you could possibly be. Look at verse 20. Look what Peter says. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. 
Church, if we get deeper, if we get deeper past past Simon trying to buy the power of God, uh, even past his desire for power, deep down into his heart desire, what we would see is that Simon has a desire to be loved. Simon has a desire to be treasured. Simon has a desire to be somebody. Simon's just like you and I. Ever since the fall, we've been blindly searching for things to give us the desires of our hearts. So we pursue money, people, materials, entertainment, security, etc., to try and fill these desires. But you and I both know they all fall short. Nothing in this world can truly give us the desires of our heart. Only Jesus can do that. When we delight ourselves in him, we begin to see these deep desires of our hearts being fulfilled. Our desire for love and acceptance is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. When we delight ourselves in him, when he is our treasure, everything else begins being placed in the right perspective as he meant it. We don't have a need to try and grasp different things like self-righteousness, a good time, power, or riches because what those things offer is already being fulfilled in our hearts. It's only when the desires of our hearts have not been satisfied, like we see here in Simon, that we are subtly deceived into pursuing those things. And we'll find ourselves not only pursuing, not only using the power of God as a a way of pursuing those things, but we will use anything and everything and everyone as a means by which we pursue what we want. So how do we keep that from happening this morning? Supreme delight in Jesus. Grow in love with the person of Christ every single day. All that your heart truly desires is only found in him. Church, guard yourself. Guard yourself from static or boring thoughts about God. God came to us as a person to show us that he loves us, to empathize with our weakness, to to, to get into real relationship with us, to call us friend, to do what it took to bring us back into community with the Godhead. And he has accomplished this. So don't be oblivious to the great intimacy that Christ has engaged you with. Christ is not looking for minions. Remember, he's taking himself for himself a bride. A bride. And he's serious about it. He's very serious about it. If you've truly placed your faith in Jesus, he has given you his very own spirit as the down payment. There's no more intimate gift he could have given you other than placing his own spirit inside of you. Let us not neglect his wonderful presence as we go in search of something only he can give. Church, I implore you to supremely delight yourself in Jesus today, tomorrow, and the next day. This is why Christ died, so you could have intimacy with the Godhead for eternity. 
Nothing else is better than this, and nothing else will fulfill the desires of your heart like this eternal community will. This is what it means to be Christian. Luke shows us in the text that when you try and satisfy your own desires by using Jesus or anything else as a means, you'll be left wanting. You'll be left confused. Simon didn't get it. I mean, Simon looked on as the gospel is being preached, as the power of God is being displayed, and all he could see was what he wanted. Church, may this not be so for us. May we be like the psalmist who says in Psalm 90:14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Christian, get your heart happy in God every morning, every day. And remember that a man or a woman whose heart is not happy in God is very, very dangerous. Not only are they dangerous, They are in much danger. But it's hard for Satan to tempt a believer filled with joy in God with the empty pleasures of this world. (laughs) Our sister, Miss Gail Thompson, is now rejoicing around the throne. (laughs) Every weight and sin that ever entangled her has been obliterated. I talked to Roy Thursday, and he, he told me, he said, Corey, something I'm so confident of, he said, is, is God, our God is the divine healer. And I texted him back yesterday, and I said, Roy, you're right. Your wife, our sister, has been healed completely. of Everything. Everything. Every stain washed by the blood of the lamb. And church, here's the deal. I firmly believe, I firmly believe that if she could tell us one thing this morning, it would be this, rejoice in Jesus now, now, don't waste your life being distracted by anything else, just rejoice because that's what eternity is about, it's about rejoicing intimately with the God who created us and loves us and has gone to great ends to show us this love he has for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, God, that this is worship. This is what you you want from us, God. Not worship where we, we come and we stand far back and we we offer up something to you, God. No. (laughs) The picture you give us is a wedding, God. It's standing beside us, looking to have us for eternity and love us. God, this should rock our world. It should blow our minds every day that the God of the universe desires this kind of love from us, from people who are so sinful and so misguided and so simple. You're such a good God. And Lord, we pray this morning that we would not be 
subtly deceived by the enemy into thinking something else. But we pray, God, that we would fight sin and subtle deception from the enemy with supreme delight in Jesus. This is the answer. So, Lord, help us as we go from here to delight in you and to encourage every day, brothers and sisters, to do the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.